The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow and director of constitutional studies here at the Manhattan Institute. And boy, are you in for a treat tonight. Uh, I look forward to watching this panel as much as all of you, uh, I'm sure. So let's get to it. I will quickly uh, uh, introduce uh, the panelists uh, and the author of the, uh, the article in City Journal, captivating uh, article by Glenn Lowry called Clarence Thomas uh, and Me. So Glenn Lowry, the author, uh, is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Economics at Brown University and a Paulson Fellow here at MI. Uh, he has earned distinctions like being a distinguished fellow of the American Economics Association, a member of the American Philosophical Society, uh, and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He really does it all. And additionally, he's the host of the popular podcast, The Glenn Show. Uh, after Glenn uh, will be Randall Kennedy, who's the Michael R. Klein professor at Harvard Law School, uh, a legal scholar, former clerk to Justice Thurgood Marshall, uh, received the 1998 Robert F. Kennedy Book Award uh, for his work in race, crime, and the law, uh, and has authored several other books. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, Robbie George, Robert P. George, uh, the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton, who's uh, founded the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, waited for me to graduate before uh, uh, founding that, so uh, take that for what it's worth. Uh, he served as the chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, uh, the President's Council on Bioethics, and as a presidential appointee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And while it's not normally my want to plug events for other institutions, uh, if you have a moment, the 30th anniversary fest shrift for Robbie's Making Men Moral uh, at AEI, I commend uh, that conference to you, whether you're into uh, philosophy, politics, political philosophy, uh, or just really smart people talking about interesting things. All right, with that, uh, I will uh, turn it over uh, to Glenn to talk about, well, Clarence Thomas and himself uh, uh, and, and their relationship, personal and intellectual, as it were. Thanks very much, Ilya. I'm happy to be doing this. Uh, I wrote this piece about Justice Thomas because I think there is an injustice. Uh, I think that Clarence Thomas's uh, achievements, that his life story, I, I think his biography are exemplary of what's possible in this great country and that uh, his uh, impact on American law deserves to be celebrated regardless of whether or not one agrees in every respect with uh, the various uh, legal and philosophical disputes that are at issue. Um, I think there's something enigmatic about the way in which Justice Thomas is received in the American public conversation uh, about the way in which his character, his competence and his independence have been questioned uh, about the fact that his conservatism can't be taken at face value as positions that, at, which honorable people might arrive at. 
uh, but rather are uh, taken to uh, indicate some kind of betrayal or uh, inauthenticity on his part. Um, I think that his blackness is critical to assessing the meaning of his professional and personal life, that he exemplifies something uh, in his journey from uh, obscurity and uh, inauspicious beginnings to uh, the height of American politics and law, uh, that his uh, achievements should be celebrated. And uh, I wanted to take the opportunity in this piece to uh, affirm that position. I do so uh, both out of uh, conviction, but also out of a sense of affiliation uh, with Justice Thomas at a personal level. We were both born in the same year, 1948. We met in the early 1980s in the first Reagan administration when he was chairman of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and shared uh, political and philosophical uh, ideas and conversation with one another. Uh, we prayed together uh, as uh, friends on the telephone during his ordeal in 1991, uh, during the confirmation hearing process. Um, and I visited with him in his chambers and uh, discussed law and life with him uh, over these years. Justice Thomas is a great man. We don't have to agree with everything that he says in order to acknowledge that. And that's the point I want to try to get across. Thanks very much, uh, Glenn. Uh, next, we'll have Randall Kennedy, and I'll just mention for the audience, if you have questions, please go ahead and type them into, there should be a button that says question if you if you register um, uh, and type it in and we'll, we'll, we'll get to you. Professor Kennedy, please. Thank you very much. Professor Lowry writes in his uh, article that it is no longer possible to deny Justice Thomas's stature and his influence on American life and law. That's altogether true. I don't think anyone can sensibly deny that he is powerful. The issue is, how does he use his power? And I think he uses his power very badly. Uh, his use of power does not bring forth from me celebration. It brings forth from me mourning. Why do I say that? I say that because I judge his use of power in the following way. Does do, do his votes, does what he said, his, his opinions, his votes, do they advance, um, do they advance American democracy in a good fashion? I do not think that they do. Um, the things, I guess the, the area of law that I pay most attention to with uh, Justice Thomas has to do with his opinions regarding race relations law. And with respect to that, uh, there's one case in particular that uh, really grabs me by the throat. And that case is Shelby County versus Holder, a case in which the Supreme Court of the United States eviscerated the most effective law of the second reconstruction, um, the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965. I think the Supreme Court of the United States just made up a theory to um, eviscerate the Voting Rights Act. It was a 5-4 decision. Justice Thomas was one of the five. And yes, I hold it against him that he was a part of a force in American life that hobbled an extremely important statute 
an important a, a statute that was one with blood. Um, I asked the audience to think about this. Imagine we're we're heading towards May seventeenth, nineteen fifty four. May seventeenth, nineteen fifty four is will be the seventieth anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. Let's do a little, you know, do a little thought experiment. What would this Supreme Court? What would our nine justices do? What would they have done in 1954 if we could just sort of put them in a time capsule with their present thinking and put them back in 1954? Would they have come up with Brown versus Board of Education? Justice Thomas says that he's an originalist. Would originalism uh, lead him to strike down separate but equal? I don't think so. Would originalism have him strike down anti-miscegenation laws uh, that in 1967, the sort of laws that were invalidated by the Warren court in Loving versus Virginia? I don't think so. Finally, with respect to the question of Justice Thomas and betrayal, Justice Thomas as a sellout, I wrote a book on racial betrayal. And in my book written years and years ago, I said, well, I don't think it would be fair to label Justice Thomas as a sellout. I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind. Justice Thomas trades on his blackness. He traded on his blackness during his um, confirmation hearings. He trades on his blackness from time to time in his opinions. He opportunistically uses his blackness as a way of validating the positions that he's that he that he takes. And I would ask um, I would ask Professor Lowry, is there anything that is there any position that Justice Thomas could take that would lead him to say that Justice Thomas has betrayed black America? Maybe the answer is, well, no, there's nothing. But if there is something that he could say or do that would lead um, uh, Justice uh, uh, Professor Lowry to say, yeah, well, that would constitute betrayal, I'd like to hear it. Because from what Justice Thomas has said and done, some of his votes are so awful, in my view, that yes, they ought to be viewed as a type of betrayal. And I don't say this happily at all. But I think that Justice Thomas has comported himself in a way that warrants very strong condemnation. Thank you. Um, Glenn, uh, just because the, uh, the gauntlet has been thrown, uh, would you like to reply right now just on the issue of betrayal, sellout, um, that sort of that that aspect. I'll, I'll leave it to Robbie for the for the jurisprudence. Uh, I'm I'm very surprised that the author of My Race Problem and Ours, that's Randall Kennedy's essay in the Atlantic uh, from way back in the 1980s, which I remember well, would ask me that question because the answer to it is, and I think the answer is obvious. No, no, there's no position that a black man named Clarence Thomas could take, with which I may or may not agree that in virtue of having taken that position, I would say that he betrayed black people. He's being true to himself and he's black. He gets to speak for black people just as much as anybody else does. The, the insights to which he might arrive, which again, I say, I don't necessarily have to endorse, 
are part of the African-American experience. He's not obliged to read the Voting Rights Act in its latter day uh, judicial interpretation as Randall Kennedy would have him read it. And this uh, uh, device of projecting backwards and asking what he would say if he were sitting on the Warren Court in 1954, I mean, I don't even think I need to address that. That's obviously unfair. I have no way of knowing what he would say uh, about that. You don't like originalism. You don't have to like originalism. Uh, originalist who happens to be black is no less black in virtue of being an originalist. All right. Well, let's go to uh, another uh, originalist. I, I think you call yourself an originalist, Robbie, but uh, if you want to uh, take up the, uh, the question of Brown and, and otherwise, then bring it back to Glenn's article and, and, and your reaction to that from your perspective. Well, first, I want to uh, thank you, Ayo, for the opportunity to be on, especially since I get to be on with you and with uh, Professor Kennedy and with Professor uh, Lowry, three uh, people that I very much like and uh, admire, three friends. Uh, I should also add that Clarence Thomas is a friend of mine. We've been friends uh, since the early 1990s, before, actually before he uh, went on to the court. Uh, and there's a story there that might be relevant to our deliberations this evening. Uh, we became uh, friends because he was somewhat controversial in conservative judicial circles, uh, even before going on to the Supreme Court of the United States, when he was uh, serving as a U.S. Court of Appeals judge, uh, because in a number of uh, writings of his, he had expressed sympathy for the great tradition of natural law and natural rights. And from the perspective of some conservatives of that time, and especially some originalists, so-called natural law jurisprudence uh, was a bad word. Uh, natural law jurisprudence was identified with the jurisprudence of the Warren Court that was willing freely to depart from the text of the Constitution and its logic and structure and original understanding in order to advance political uh, goals associated with a particular uh, liberal ideology uh, of the time. Uh, I didn't read Justice Thomas's uh, essays in the way that many of my fellow uh, conservatives who were critical of him uh, read those essays, but I uh, looked for an opportunity to get to know him, and one arose when uh, I was hosting a conference here at Princeton for judges uh, in the summer and I invited then Judge Thomas uh, up to, to Princeton to talk about this very issue, uh, natural law and natural rights, and the question of uh, the judicial interpretation of statutes and especially the Constitution to give him an opportunity to clarify uh, these points, uh, which were points of division within the conservative uh, family. And he did come and he gave a very good uh, paper in which he tried to explain to his fellow uh, judges that an understanding of the American Constitution and rooted as rooted in the tradition of natural law and natural rights, a recognition that the founders uh, shaped the law, especially the law of the Constitution, in light of their understanding of natural law and natural rights, did not translate into a license for judges to substitute their understandings or vision of natural law and natural rights for those of the lawmaker or constitution maker or ratifiers of the of the constitution. Uh, just a few weeks after uh, he visited Princeton and we got to know each other, uh, he, uh, Justice Marshall, uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall, uh, retired from the court. And shortly after that, of course, uh, Justice Thomas was uh, nominated and 
the rest, as you know, is history. So over the years, uh, you know, we've had many opportunities to get together, and very often the, the subject of our conversation returns to the tradition of natural law and natural rights, and we have opportunities to discuss that. We discuss that a great deal more than we discuss any particular cases uh, that the Supreme Court handles or that he's been uh, involved in. We come from two different uh, schools of thought within the broad tradition of natural law and natural rights. Uh, he picked up his uh, ideas about that subject from uh, the Straussian tradition, the followers of Leo Strauss, a couple of uh, uh, Strauss's uh, students, or I should say grand students, students of Leo Strauss's students were very influential with Justice Thomas uh, when they worked for him and he was serving uh, as head of the EEOC. They, they had a kind of informal, uh, like a graduate seminar uh, going when he was in that role and they were working uh, for him. And so his understanding is very much what's, uh, what political theorists would recognize as West Coast Straussianism. I was trained in a very different tradition, the tradition of analytic philosophy. I did my doctorate uh, in Oxford under John Finnis and Joseph uh, Raz. So, you know, we had different perspectives, but that really enriched, I think, uh, has enriched our conversations. I say has enriched because these conversations continue to go on. One of the most uh, interesting experiences I've had with Justice Thomas was an informal um, event, uh, just getting together where we were with the late uh, economist Walter Williams. He's in Glenn's field. I'm sure Glenn knows him and knows uh, his work. And uh, that was a conversation uh, in which Justice Thomas didn't actually state a position, but asked the two of us questions as we debated. It was almost as if we were before the court, although it was in a very informal, private, personal uh, setting. And, and here was the subject. The, the subject was, um, what's wrong with slavery? what exactly is morally wrong for slavery? And of course, we agree that slavery is a violation of natural law and natural rights. Williams agreed with that. I agreed with that. But Williams' theory was very different from mine. Williams argued that the reason that slavery is a violation of natural rights is that we have the right to our own selves. We own ourselves. I took the position that that's not the problem with slavery. It's not that we own ourselves and someone's stealing us from ourselves. The problem is we're the kind of entity, the kind of reality that can't be owned. So I challenged Williams, who was really invoking Locke's ideas here of self-ownership with a different theory about the basic dignity of the human person. Our dignity does not consist in the fact that we own ourselves. We're in a subject-object relationship with ourselves, but rather that as persons, as distinct from things as this particular kind of entity, we're the kind of entity that just can't be owned, not by the state, not by other people, not by private people, not by corporations, and not by ourselves. So I was challenging the idea of self-ownership as a, as a basis for um, um, opposition to slavery and as a basis for human dignity. What Justice Thomas did in that conversation was just ask super intelligent questions. He didn't take position one way or another. He put hard questions. I guess as judges are want to do hard questions to Professor Williams and he uh, put hard questions uh, to me. On the specific jurisprudential question, uh, Ilya, that I think you wanted uh, me to intervene on where Professor Kennedy had raised that interesting question about what Justice Thomas would do in a case like Brown against the Board of Education. My guess is that he would have come down and, and, and Professor Lowry's right, we're just guessing here. But my guess is that he would have come down 
not in the way that Chief Justice Warren came down in that case, the case of segregation. I think rather he would have come down the way that uh, the first Justice Harlan, Justice John Marshall Harlan came down uh, in Plessy against Ferguson, in which he wrote a very powerful dissent defending the idea that our constitution was colorblind, that our constitution forbids the government from recognizing castes. I think that, uh, as Michael McConnell has shown, a very good, roughly speaking, this term is ambiguous, originalist, a very good originalist argument can be made uh, for Justice Harlan's position. Justice uh, Harlan was articulating that position uh, within a very short period of time after the ratification uh, of, the, uh, of the 14th Amendment in, in 1868. I think a very good uh, originalist position, uh, argument could be made, as McConnell has uh, shown, and I think Justice Thomas would probably make an argument very much like that. I don't think he would uphold segregation. Great. Um, Glenn, let's bring it back to you uh, and let's do uh, uh, some more uh, textual analysis of your article, if you will. I, I, uh, and this ties into something that Professor Kennedy said as well. You talk about, well, an earlier book that you had written uh, in the early 90s called the, Lo uh, the Leadership Failure and the Loyalty Trap, talking about elites and especially black elites. And this ties in with this charge of, of, of Justice Thomas being uh, disloyal or a sellout for that matter. Um, how, how do these uh, conceptions uh, or hatred, or uh, you even say that uh, Professor Kennedy loathes Thomas, uh, why does that come about? You know, it just seems indeed that, that Justice Thomas uh, from fairly early on became a lightning rod of opposition, maybe even more than Scalia, you know, more now than you know, Gorsuch or uh, you know, Alito is contending with him after Dobbs, perhaps, but still, there's just this uh, visceral uh, dislike uh, of Thomas. And I think that probably ties back, and you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it resonates with me with this idea of this loyalty trap. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the book was called One by One from the Inside Out. It was Essays and Reviews on Race and Responsibility in America, the subtitle, uh, 1995 Free Press. Uh, and the essay was called uh, something about the loyalty trap. I don't remember the exact title. Uh, the idea I was trying to get across was that African-Americans, and we're not alone in this, uh, a uh, group that is marginalized and oppressed, that's struggling and fighting against oppression and suppression, uh, will naturally uh, seek to uh, elicit solidarity in the public-facing uh, comments of its prominent members uh, so as to be most effective in the advocacy of for its interests. Uh, and for African-Americans, this phenomenon has manifested itself. As I say, not only African-Americans uh, exhibit this kind of closure, this kind of uh, sense of uh, in insistence upon conformity to, as it were, the party line. Uh, so uh, dissidence, dissidence and uh, a departure from the party line uh, is uh, socially uh, disapproved of and is punished by group members by uh, ostracism and uh, a, a discrediting of the person who doesn't follow the party line. As Justice Thomas said in his uh, confirmation hearing, uh, for uppity Negroes who deign to think for themselves, uh, the, the punishment can be severe. That, that's the kind of thing uh, that I think is at play um, and again, I, I want to insist that the identity of the 
uh, individual, the racial identity of the individual doesn't carry with it any uh, necessary uh, requirement that they think a certain way that the, the uh, test should be the quality of their arguments and the evidence that they can bring to bear. Uh, the expectation that because they happen to belong to a certain group, they should be uh, spouting a certain uh, uh, mantra, uh, I think, is is not reasonable. Uh, so that's how I'd respond, Ilya. Right, and 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 Randall, um, in in his article, it, uh, 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 Glenn doesn't only uh, talk about your your dislike for and what you've called uh, Justice Thomas. He also describes you as a heterodox thinker, and, and that uh, further legitimates uh, your uh, uh, status among, uh, uh, as he puts it, the, the liberal black intelligentsia. Uh, but is there something special about Justice Thomas, or are you labeling uh, uh, all black conservatives or, or uh, uh, you know, political figures who are on the right as, uh, as sellouts? Is there, is there something particular about, about Thomas? Yeah, like me, like me. Are you labeling me a sellout? I think you know the answer to that. No, no, I'm not. I have publicly expressed my admiration for many of your writings, and I'm happy to do so now. I do think on this particular issue, however, you are um, you're, you're 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 inconsistent. In your article, you talk about Justice Thomas. One of one of your criticisms is you say. Justice Thomas feels that he is being loyal to black people. He has a he has a feeling for his people. You talk about his affiliation, and, and in fact, you're you're angry with black people for not actually embracing him because you say, you know, he's he's one of us. That's part of your belief. True? Is that true? That yeah. He's one of us. Well, yes. if he is one of us, as soon as you use that word us, as soon as you say that, well, what it does us mean? Any group, I don't care what the group is, any racial group, it could be a religious group, it could be the nation state, any group has boundaries around it. That's what usness is. And I'm saying that in his case, in his case, he has gone beyond what I am willing to countenance as, you know, the boundary. I, I think I have a very capacious boundary. He's gone beyond it. And just one more thing, you know, why he is a person with tremendous power. He's, he's, he's one ninth of the United States living constitution. He's a very powerful figure. And I will return to what I said about Brown versus Board of Education. And here, Robbie, I, I want to go to you. Justice Bork got in trouble. And I think, you know, wrongly so. I think he was, he was very straightforward. People ask Justice Bork, well, listen, you're an originalist. Where's Brown versus Board of Education? And him being very candid, he was very candid admirably candid. He said, well, if you're an originalist, Brown versus Board of Education, and certainly Bowling versus Sharp, the companion case coming from the District of Columbia, is a problem for originalists. If you're an originalist, you've got a problem with the segregation cases. And from what I gather, 
it seems to me Justice Thomas might very well be willing to say, if you push me on this, I'm going to go with originalism. Well, you know, I'm willing to push him, and I don't like the political choices that he makes. Well, well let, let me, really let me inter- I'll, I'll, I'll let you go, uh, Robbie, but let me just uh, uh, interject. The, the, the Michael McConnell seminal article about originalism and Brown, I'll commend that to the to the audience, uh, uh, and and um, lost my second thought, but that's that's good because I'm just the moderator. Robbie, please go ahead. Yeah, well, something, Randy, that I think is very important is that we have to understand that these broad theories, uh, these labels that we use, yeah. originalist, um, proceduralist, structuralist, living constitutionalist, and so forth, these are broad approaches. And within any of those schools, there are significant disagreements about how cases are resolved or should be resolved, including significant disagreements about very important, how very important cases like Brown against the Board of Education uh, should be uh, resolved. Self-proclaimed originalists are different schools within the broad category of, of, of originalism. And there are different, different opinions about things, even like Brown against Board of Education. Uh, Earl Maltz, as somebody you know, I'm sure, at Rutgers University, is on the Bork side of that question. He thinks that a sound originalism will not give you Brown against Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Professor McConnell, I myself, others think that a sound originalism will give you the result in Brown against Board of Education, but not Earl Warren's particular approach to the question. It's much more likely to give you an approach like the dissent uh, in Plessy of uh, the first Justice Harlan. Now, the reason I think that Justice Thomas would be more likely to come down the way McConnell and I come down and not the way that Maltz and Judge Hort uh, come down is precisely his belief in natural law and natural rights and his understanding of what the natural law basis of the rights written into the 14th Amendment are, especially the Equal Protection uh, Clause. Uh, I think he would see it as an anti-caste principle. That's a principle of natural rights that the framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment had in their own heads and wished to embody in the Constitution. Now, that doesn't mean that they themselves would have perfectly applied their principle. You know, there probably would have been differences among the ratifiers about the application of the principle, even if they agreed on the principle uh, itself. Uh, But... I would not jump to the conclusion that just because Judge Bork or Earl Maltz says that on their version of originalism, you don't get Brown versus Board, that nobody else can legitimately come up with a embrace a version of originalism that does give you the result in Brown against Board. You can test that out just by looking at Warren Court opinions. Look at the opinions on which Black and Douglas divided. You know, they, they were both Roosevelt appointees. They were both liberals. They were both broadly speaking within a general way of looking at the world. There were Warren Court justices, but and on many point many points of law, they completely agreed. But there were others on which they disagreed because people in that school of thought disagreed. Even Brennan and Marshall, they were they were together an awful lot of time, but sometimes they divided. Although their interpretative approaches were identical. Can I ask you a question, Robbie? Yeah. How do you respond to this? This is a challenge I'd pose to you. Mm-hmm. I think that um, you, I think that uh, Judge McConnell, I think that 
uh, Steve Calabresi. I think that a number of conservative originalists are taking the position that you're taking and saying that we're originalists and we and 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 we could use our originalism and get to the result in Brown versus Board of Education because you realize that so many people would be just completely um, repelled from originalism if the cost of originalism was countenancing segregation, countenancing anti-miscegenation laws and the rest. Am I, am I, am I off on that? Uh, yeah, uh, Randy, you are. I, I think you know very well, um, I'm not afraid uh, to take an unpopular opinion, am I? Am I afraid to take an unpopular opinion <laughs> in not. the elite academic world? Am I, <laughs> am I afraid to cause people to get very mad at me because of things that I advocate? Am I willing to live with the implications of the principles that I endorse and publicly go out there and defend them? You certainly are. I think this is a bridge too far, and that's why I think <laughs> that's why I think that you're taking the position you're well, taking. I'll, I think I'll, you're I'll, being I think you're being closed-minded here, Randy. I want to open I'll, your mind I'll, here. I want to I want to I want to do what liberals tell me they want to do all the time. They want to open minds. I want to open your mind here. I think you're running together originalism with legal positivism, and I think that's a mistake. I think a sound original, at least my version of originalism, and clearly Justice Thomas's version of originalism, is not associated with legal positivism, but rather with a belief in natural law and natural rights. So what you're trying to recover are the natural law and natural rights principles that everyone agrees. I think you would agree, whether you yourself agree with the natural law and natural rights school, I think you would agree that the framers and ratifiers of the original Constitution and those of the 14th Amendment were believers in natural law and natural rights and wish to embody in the text, in the law, those principles. Am I wrong? All right. I'm, I'm going to cut that off right now and move us back from 1954 back to 2024. Uh, I'll, I'll throw in uh, Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick's book on the 14th Amendment as more ev originalism evidence that supports uh, uh, Robbie. But, but regardless, Robbie, I'd like to go back to you on the uh, race cases that Justice Thomas has voted on or written uh, be it Shelby County, be it uh, uh, the affirmative action cases, uh, RAV versus St. Paul and cross burning. Mm, what can you say about about that jurisprudence? Not what he would have done 70 years ago or in Plessy or whatever else, but his actual race jurisprudence. And then, I'll, Glenn, I want you to respond as the only non-lawyer here and what you have to say from your perspective on, on this discussion. Uh, here, I'm probably um, biased by my friendship with Justice Thomas, and just by, you know, conversations that we've had, um, I suspect that he doesn't ask himself the question, how should I, as a black man who happens to be a Supreme Court justice, rule on this case? Or what will advance the cause of, quote, my people? Uh, or even what will advance the cause of American democracy? I think what he's interested in as a justice, as a judge, is what does the Constitution require me to do? What does the Constitution mean? If I look at the text of the Constitution, if I, if I look at its logical presuppositions of the, of the particular provision, the logical presuppositions are logical entailments. If I look at the structure of the Constitution, try to make sense of its provisions. If I look at the historical understanding, if I try to understand the purposes that the Constitution makers and ratifiers had in mind, that will shed light on 
how this case should be resolved. And that's what I should look at. I shouldn't look at it through a racial lens. I, I think Justice Thomas, I might be the outlier here, but knowing him, I think he would resist the idea that I should look at this as a black man. Now, you might say he's wrong to that because as a black man, given the history, he ought to be looking at these matters as a black man. I just don't think he sees that as legitimate. It's not what he does. Glenn, what do you think about this law talk? Uh, well, I, I, I want to come back to something that uh, Randall said, which was challenging. He says, I'm inconsistent. He says, I want Thomas to be black and I want him to be recognized as a great African-American. I, I want black youngsters to look up to him. I want schools named after him. I want people to name their children after him. And I exaggerate, but you see what I mean. Uh, and yet, and yet, I want him to have the freedom to think for himself and to come to the conclusions that he comes to, regardless of whether or not that's popular with black people. And I don't want him to be excommunicated from the race in virtue of the fact that he thinks for himself and takes uh, heterodox positions. Um, and then Robbie says, well, yes, but Justice Thomas in constitutional interpretation as an originalist and as a, a believer in natural law, uh, reads the constitution uh, as a, a jurist uh, without reference to his racial identity. And I am inclined to think that that's also correct. Uh, but I think that sometimes both things can be going on. That is to say, he can be both uh, trying to understand uh, what he ought to do with the great power that he has as a jurist, but also asking himself uh, what is uh, in this fine country, uh, given where African-Americans find ourselves, imperative for us to do uh, for our future. I think you see that in his uh, uh, treatment of the affirmative action issue uh, where he both, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but I did read uh, the opinions of uh, Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas uh, in the recent uh, uh, Harvard uh, and UNC affirmative action cases. He's both trying uh, to uh, give an honest reading of what he thinks the 14th Amendment requires, but he's also finding uh, a, a way of expressing ideas about uh, the dignity of African-Americans that he uh, thinks is uh, uh, challenged and compromised uh, through uh, racial preferences. So I, I think both of those things can be going on at the same time. I agree with Glenn's last point. I have, I, his description, I think is, is true. I think that both things are true. Um, and of course, life is complicated. Our identities are complicated. Um, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want actually, I would not want Justice Thomas to have, or, or any jurist, frankly, to have in their mind, you know, um, as, as a, as a loan idea is this good for black people? Because I mean, after all, you could come to the conclusion that something is good for black people, but bad for, you know, bad for everybody, bad for the rest of the world. Would I want that? No, I wouldn't want that. Um, so I think that there are tensions within Justice Thomas, like frankly, there are tensions within all of us um, with respect to, you know, does Justice Thomas um, tap into his blackness and actually 
show it from time to time. Yes, he does. There's, I bet there's no justice in the history of the Supreme Court who's made reference to Frederick Douglass, for instance, more than Justice Thomas. And not just, not just Frederick Douglass, I think he's made reference to Malcolm X. He clearly, his, his, his history, his identity, his particular struggles with colorism and other aspects of the Black experience are clearly on his mind, and he shows it. Fine. I, I, don't, I don't object to that. I'm simply saying, after you do that, however, and if you do that, and he, he does do that, well, then, you know, people assessing you, it seems to me, are within their rights to ask, at least as part of their assessment, um, what, you know, what does this mean for Black America? That shouldn't be the only thing, but it seems to me that's one thing. And I will say, um, again, I want to hear about, or let me put it differently, the case that sticks in my throat the most it's not the affirmative action case, not the affirmative action case. I'm a defender of affirmative action, have been for a long time, but you know, I, I think that there are I think that there are arguments on the other side. I think that there are actually strong arguments on the other side. I do not see that in the voting rights case. And in the voting rights case, I think that a hundred years from now, people will look back on that case and put that in the same category as some of the worst cases in the history of the Supreme Court. Let me try, I'm, I'm trying to think myself sympathetically into Randy's uh, view here. And I do think there is a case where Justice Thomas's race figured uh, importantly in an important uh, contribution that he made. And that is the RAV against St. Paul mm -hmm. case. Uh, and in that case, I think... Or, or the follow-on, Virginia versus Black, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that Justice Thomas's own experience as a Black person with racism, um, his, his understanding of the history of what that actually meant, just how horrific it actually was, um, helped him to understand probably better than somebody who wasn't Black, didn't have that experience, didn't have that family history, hadn't heard all those stories, uh, uh, an understanding of what it really means to have a flag, have a uh, cross burnt on your lawn or something like that. I think that mattered there. So I'm here trying to think myself, as I say, sympathetically into Randy's view. I can see Randy making the argument, well, that same sensibility, that same sensibility that enabled him to make an important contribution, I think, in the RAV uh, case and the other should have been in his mind in Shelby County. And maybe had he looked at that more sympathetically from the perspective of the evils that the law was supposed to be overcoming, trying to overcome, the Voting Rights Act is trying to overcome, that should have made a difference. Uh, if, so, is that so fair, Randy? Yeah, excuse, excuse me, uh, yeah. Robbie. You think he wrongly decided the voting rights case. Time. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm trying to think myself into Randy's position here. Uh-huh. Because he's he's saying mm -hmm. sometimes surely 
race, Justice Thomas's race should matter. And we know from his invocations of Frederick Douglass uh -huh. and even Malcolm X that sometimes race does matter. So I'm thinking in my head, Glenn, well, yeah, I can think of a case where it really did and, and where it made a positive contribution. That's REV. And, you know, if I, if I were arguing Randy's case, I'd say that same sensibility that we saw in RAV should have been there. And I think Randy would think it would make a difference if it were there in the holder in Shelby County. That's very useful. Um, I would throw in as well uh, McDonald versus Chicago and uh, his uh, invocation of privileges or immunities, the history of reconstruction and the dispossession of uh, firearms from black people and, and, and other uh, aspects there as a as an interpretive method that's, uh, I think, both more originalist and, and different from what the, the plurality was was doing there. Uh, let me turn. We've actually, the, the audience is submitting questions. You're still welcome to submit more questions. You press that button on, on the YouTube channel. We're sort of hitting most of the ones that, uh, that are making it into the chat as we talk, which is understandable. I think these are the most important uh, issues that come through in, in Glenn's uh, article. But one thing, uh, Glenn, I want to go back to you, some more of the, the personal stuff. Uh, uh, your experience and Justice Thomas's experience um, that he detailed in his autobiography, my, my grandfather's son, of kind of as a black man going through uh, changing America and your your own you know, changing personal views and going left, going right, a radicalism period, a, a reevaluation. Um, you know, did you write this or do you, you know, are you, are you thinking about the, uh, uh, Justice Thomas because of, of that parallel to your personal life or uh, talk to us about that aspect of, of your work. Well, yeah, the loneliness of the black conservative, you know, the enigma of the black conservative and and all of that. And uh, the the fact that uh, I blinked. This is my autobiographical observation here. Uh, I kind of tacked left and uh, in the 90s and the aughts. Uh, there was a period where I was talking of myself as a man of the left, where I had uh, revised uh, some of my uh, conservative views more in keeping with uh, uh, what I call the Negro cognoscenti uh, in, in, my, in my memoir. And uh, I, I did it in part to regain standing uh, with my um, African-American peers in, in the academy and in the intelligentsia, in the media, in my own family, uh, and whatnot. Uh, too much about me here. Justice Thomas hasn't done that. Uh, this is part of what I meant to say that his uh, uh, convictions, his willingness to stick to his convictions and to say the things that he thinks are true, even when they cut against the grain amongst his co-racialists, uh, is, is extremely admirable. And uh, part of uh, my admiration for him derives from my personal experience with uh, the difficulty of uh, ma maintaining one's intellectual integrity under the pressures of the accusations of racial disloyalty. You know, uh, uh, Joe, Joe Biden got into a lot of trouble and you know had to walk back his uh, statement that, uh, you know, black folk that if you don't vote, if you're not voting for me, you ain't black. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, he had to walk it back, which I think is good. It shows you something. I think that shows you some progress. But the fact that he would say it, could say it, 
I think also tells you something important about what the point Glenn was just making there. You know, if you're a member of a particular group, you know, as 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 Randy said at the beginning, you know, the, there's this groupness thing, right? There's this 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 sort of set of ideas that are acceptable and those that are beyond the pale and put you outside the the group. Well, you know, I think for a, a long time uh, and through most of Clarence Thomas's career, you you were considered a heretic if you were black and conservative. You, you could you could be a lot of other things, but you couldn't be a conservative. No, 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 there, no, there's, there's, there's various, you know, there's a spectrum of conservatives there. There, in fact, Glenn makes a very good point. Glenn in his, in his art, in his article sort of, uh, sticks it to me and saying, well, you know, Kennedy, you must know that there are a substantial number of black people who have ideas that are very similar to Clarence Thomas's. And that is absolutely true. That, that's true. Um, I, you know, I, I disagree with a lot of those ideas, but just as a, you know, at a sociological level, many of his ideas are embraced by, you know, other black people. Um, again, you know, if we're talking about blacks and conservatism, there are black conservatives, just like for a long time, there have been, you know, black Republicans. Um, Justice Thomas, I think, is, has, has, has made himself persona non grata in much of the black community because I think that he has said things and done things that a lot of black people rightly view with contempt, not just disagreement. Within black America, you go to a, you go to a black American dinner or party and people are disagreeing all the time. But there are some positions taken which raise antenna and make people think, hmm, you really are not with us at all. And there I go back again to Shelby County above all, not the affirmative action case. I think that's a lot more, you know, people, people can deal with that. Shelby County, and I'll mention some other cases. There have been cases, I, rem I forget the name of the case. Elio, you'll probably remember it. The there have been a couple of jury discrimination cases where Justice Thomas has been the lone justice. There was one in particular coming from the Deep South. It seemed Flowers, to me. Flowers, I think, from Mississippi. That's the one. It seemed to me obvious. What are you talking about? It was almost race ipsiloquitur. The, the facts speak for themselves. And Justice Thomas alone said, no. I, I, frankly, it had me scratching my head. And it's that sort of thing that I think prompts people to think that um, I'm not going to trust this man's judgment. I'm not going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's where he is with a lot of Black America. 
All right, let's change gears a little bit. I, I think that that point is is clear and, and, and laid out on the on the table from various perspectives. Uh, a, a question came through, and I guess this is uh, most for for Robbie. Uh, please explain the difference between Justice Thomas's and Scalia's and Alito's jurisprudence, because there's a lot of obviously, thankfully, non-lawyers watching this. So just so we have some 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 parsimonious analysis here. Okay, uh, sure. So uh, Justice uh, Scalia, uh, like Justice Thomas, is a self-described originalist. So he believes that where uh, a provision of the Constitution is not clear in its meaning or its applicability of a particular set of facts on its face, uh, we try to understand what it means and therefore how it should be applied by reference to the original public meaning. That is the, the, the meaning that it had for the people whose act of ratification turned it from being just somebody's idea, somebody's bright idea, uh, into law. Uh, justice Alito, by contrast, does not label himself. He doesn't label himself an originalist. He doesn't label himself something else. He has expressed the view that he thinks that all of these labels are uh, misleading and that the art of judging cannot be reduced to this approach or that approach, originalism, proceduralism, living constitution, or what have you. I think Randy's um, uh, colleague up at Harvard, Adrian Vermeule, at a recent conference on Justice Alito's thought, uh, made a very good point when he said that if you look at Justice Alito's thought, what seems to be doing the work in a lot of cases where the meaning of a provision of the Constitution is not clear on its face is his sense of the purpose of the provision, that he's constantly going back to the purpose. And Randy, uh, you weren't at the conference, but you'll be interested, I think, to hear that he thought, uh, Adrian thought, that the real uh, powerful influence uh, on Justice Alito in this respect was the late Lon L. Fuller, who taught uh, at your law school at Harvard, wrote that famous book, The Morality of Law, uh, which was so focused on understanding law in light of its purposes uh, that uh, his great critic, the Oxford uh, legal philosopher H.L.A., Hart said that um, that uh, when when Fuller's passion for purpose would cool, it would finally leave a lot of light on the subject and less uh, and less heat. Um, and I think that's probably probably right. So this results in um, some differences of opinion when it comes to actual uh, cases. Although you know, in most cases where the court divides uh, along roughly speaking ideological lines, although that's the term ideological there is. Un unfortunate, but anyway, it's what we use. Um, very often when there's a division along those lines, you're going to find Justice Alito with Justice Thomas, but they have also disagreed on uh, some important things. Justice Alito has been a lone dissenter in some areas, including uh, in free speech law. He and he and Justice Thomas are not on the same page uh, in some cases. They're uh, thinking, for example, Justice Alito's lone dissent in the um, uh, Westboro Baptist Church case. I've forgotten the actual style of the case. Do you remember what the name of the case was? Snyder versus Phelps. Snyder versus Phelps involving the, the Westboro uh, Baptist Church. There, there uh, you know, Justice uh, Thomas goes along with the, uh, the rest of the majority in uh, having a very broad uh, view of the First Amendment there, uh, one that would protect even the activities of the Westboro Baptist Church with respect to a funeral that they were protesting of a military veteran. And Justice Alito there would draw the line and say, say no. So there are some uh, differences there. And, and, and Alito, unlike Thomas, doesn't 
uh, describe himself as, as an originalist. In, in that way, you would see Justice Thomas is closer probably to Justice Scalia than to Justice Alito. I'm going to combine a couple of questions that we've gotten. Um, it's kind of interesting. Public figures can, you know, we, we, we looked at 70 years in the past, maybe look in the future where public figures can be perceived differently in hindsight. Can any of you foresee sometime in the future, whether it's 70 years or 25 or whatever, in which Justice Thomas uh, enjoys broad popularity? I mean, he is very popular among conservatives, but can that, can that grow on a personal and or professional level? And what would it take to bring about that, that, that renaissance, not just in the black community, but kind of more broadly in, uh, uh, in America? There is a, a documentary about him, uh, uh, Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words, that was produced a few years ago in a companion book that just came out last year. But look to the future. Uh, maybe, uh, Glenn, what, what do you think? Uh, I think the passage of time and the cooling of passions uh, you know, uh, Justice Thomas will not serve forever. He will eventually step down or leave the court. Um, he will have, when that happens, served a very long time, perhaps longer than anyone has served at the court. He will have left a body of work, uh, which will engender disputation to be sure, but which will nevertheless be formidable. Uh, he will have a legacy of clerks and uh, those who's, who's he's, whom he's influenced in the law who will uh, continue to exert influence. Uh, I, I think that the passage of time and the the massive footprint of his uh, jurisprudential contribution uh, bode well uh, for him uh, in the historian's uh, eye view uh, 50 or 75 years from now. Randy, what do you think? I think that history is going to be very uh, tough on Justice Thomas. Um, because, and not just him alone, I think that the history is going to be very tough on the Supreme Court that we have had uh, over the past several decades. Um, I think, you know, the Supreme Court is part of the problem that Amer the American polity faces today. Uh, people from you know, a wide range of positions on the American political spectrum realize that we have just tremendous problems in America, and and we do. And I think that the Supreme Court of the United States, I mean, after all, it's one of the three great pillars of the, you know, federal government. Uh, it is part of that and has probably helped to bring this problem to bear, these problems to bear. And so, you know, I don't, I, I think that uh, history is going to be tough on him along with uh, his colleagues. In terms of longevity, just so people uh, know, he is currently the 11th longest serving justice, 90 days away from entering the top 10, two years away from entering the top five, and looks like uh, four and a half years from being number one, which is um, feasible. Um, certainly, uh, he's he's young enough. Um, can I comment, we're, we're, uh, yep, can sure. I comment to just on that question that you put to Glenn and uh, Randy? Um, I don't think you're going to have a substantial change in the evaluation of Justice Thomas, either by the conservatives or the liberals, um, while he is still thought of as a black or the black justice. Um, I think 
if the time comes when we get past thinking of him that way and we start looking at his jurisprudence as a whole, especially when we start looking at Justice Thomas as a dissenting judge, and most especially when we look at Judge Thomas or Justice Thomas when it comes to the Commerce Clause and uh, the theory of the commerce power and the limits on the federal government's authority under the Commerce Clause, and the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, the, the clause that says no, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. I think if there comes a day when we no longer are focused on the race question, mm -hmm. but on Justice Thomas as a jurist and his jurisprudence, uh, I think he will rise in stature as a result of pioneering work he's done as a dissenter in the Commerce Clause area and the Establishment Clause area. And uh, who knows how long he serves? Maybe uh, you know he's known as the dissenter, but now he's you know more and more years uh, uh, in the majority, and indeed as the senior associate justice. Which means, for example, even a case like Dobbs, he didn't write it; Alito wrote that, but he assigned uh, the opinion to Alito. Now, of course, what I mean is, I mean this will be long after he's gone, right? right so you know, I think there will be some lengthy period of time, even after uh, Justice Thomas has stopped serving, when he'll everything is going to be looked at through the lens of race. He's just going to be assessed on that basis. But a time I think will come, and I certainly hope will come, when that won't be the main thing we think about. It won't be as central. And then we're going to be looking at other aspects of Justice Thomas's jurisprudence that we haven't even gotten around to talking about today because naturally we've been so focused on the racial aspect of things. We've hit the bottom of the hour. We can go for another few minutes. I want to hit one more question and then give each of you a, a chance to say a final word. Um, and this, uh, the, the subtitle of, of Glenn's uh, article is to speak as a black man at odds with the consensus of other blacks can be burdensome and liberating. Um, well, leaving aside the question of uh, whether the particular rulings that we've discussed or that Professor Kennedy has uh, taken issue with, whether they in fact hinder black advancement, is the expectation of racial sol solidarity uh, on the part of a judge consistent with the expectation of judicial impartiality. Who wants to take that? I think that's well, a very good question. I think it's a very good question. And and here, you know, I guess maybe I'm I'm struggling with it. I think that uh, I think that um, the issue of racial solidarity should not be um, should not get priority. I think it's a problem if someone says, um, you know, I'm black first. I mean, if you are a justice of the Supreme Court, if you're a judge, uh, if you're an elected representative, obviously we live in a multiracial country, a multiracial society. And if you, you know, are, if you are a justice, you're supposed to be a justice for all. And I think that that, I think you, one should be, and that that should be the primary thing. Now, having said that, of course, we all have multiple identities. So it, it, it's probably impossible to iron out and have you know, just one uniform identity. But if one had to prioritize, I would put the at the top some allegiance, some desire 
for some sort of transcendent identity above uh, subordinate uh, particularities. Hear, hear. Amen. All right. Um, let's have some some closing thoughts. Uh, uh, we'll go Robbie, then then Randy, then then back to Glenn to to conclude whatever you want to leave us with. Yeah, I'd like to close by uh, underscoring what Randy uh, just said and and emphasizing what a problem it is for those of us in the academic world as much as for those in public life like Justice Thomas, whether in the in the courts or uh, in legislative politics or wherever they are. Um, when you're when you're a member of a, a group, when your when your background circumstances or your beliefs make you a member of a group, it might be a political group, it might be a religious group, it might be uh, uh, an ideological camp. Um, your membership in that community depends on your orthodoxy to some extent, mm -hmm. and that puts powerful pressure on all of us to conform. And sometimes, if you're a if you're a free person, if you're a free thinker, if you think for yourself, there are going to be sometimes, I don't care what group you belong to, there are going to be sometimes when you're going to be out of step. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you. Now the question is, what are you going to do when you're out of step? Are you going to just go along? You're just going to fall into place? Or are you going to stand up? Are you going to take the slings and arrows that, uh, that come? Uh, I'll tell you a story that's not about race. Uh, Randy, your colleague, uh, Jeannie, Sue Gerson and I were talking once. Jeannie teaches criminal law uh, uh, classes as well as constitutional law and some other subjects. And she was telling me about some real third rail issues in, in criminal law that, that are hard for any criminal law professor to address because you can end up you know, stepping on a mine and the class is in an uproar against you because you've said something politically incorrect or unwoke, and all of a sudden you're 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 a terrible person, and there the mobs out to get you, and there are attacks on Twitter. And Jeannie was talking about that being a hazard of teaching criminal law, and the particular subject she was talking about didn't seem like such a problem to me. And I just said, well, Jeannie, you know, if it were me, I, I'd have no hesitation at all about addressing that subject and putting the competing points of view online. And she said something to me very interesting. She said, well you could do that and get away with it. Adrian Vermeule could do that. Jack Goldsmith, these are conservative professors. Are, you guys could do that and get away with it because you're conservatives. So you're not expected to conform. You're, that, that would just, it would be just expected that you would be out of step with the orthodoxy. She said, for me, that actually has consequences because I'm in the, in the liberal camp. Well, the same thing happens on the conservative side, by the way. I mean, I, I can tell you about experiences with that where, you know, you get out of step with the, the orthodoxy of the group and, you know, suddenly they're after you and you're the great Satan and, and, and so forth. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, I think at, at the end of the day, no matter what we do, whether we're academics, whether we're business people, whether we're in public life, whether we're, we're, we're judges, there comes a time when you're just going to have to stand up for what you believe in, speak your mind, speak for yourself, think for yourself. And then just as I say, take the slings and arrows that come. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed participating in this discussion. I have, um, there are a couple of questions in the chat that I've noted and I've got to think about. And I really do um, salute uh, my uh, colleagues that were part of this session. I've said what I believe and I've also gotten 
some challenges that I'll have to noodle over. And it seems to me that that's precisely what's good about a session like this. So I'd like to thank everyone. Thanks to you, uh, Randall, and thanks, Robbie. Thanks, thank Ilya. Um, I'm, I'm honored by the fact that this assemblage has uh, been engendered by my humble uh, contribution. Um, I, I just want to note in closing that uh, there was a lot of carping about Justice Thomas not being up to the job uh, when he first rose uh, to the bench. Um, he was an affirmative action appointee. He didn't speak during oral arguments. He was following Scalia and didn't think for himself. And I, I'd just like to uh, close here by saying that whatever one thinks about his opinion in Shelby or other cases, the question of his competency and his fitness to serve should have been laid to rest by the enormity of the contribution that he has made and he's not finished yet. Thanks very much. Thanks to our audience. Um, this has been recorded. You can watch later or send it to your friends. Uh, you can read more of uh, Manhattan Institute's work at manhattan.institute. That's the website, manhattan.institute, as well as City Journal, one of my favorite publications. Even before I joined MI a year and a half ago, just a, a top-notch uh, magazine and web presence, city-journal.org. Uh, and with that, uh, thank you so much uh, to Professors Lowry, Kennedy, and George, and we are adjourned. Thanks, guys. <laughs>